Okay, you know what? Here, here's an idea. Wouldn't it be fun if we each come up with our ultimate dinner party guest? Dinner <laughs> party dinner guest. <laughs> you mean like we should have an ultimate dinner party? Who yeah. Would, who the, would we invite? Right, right. But maybe maybe it shouldn't be friends and, and people we know. We should, Maybe that should be the rules. The most interesting people from down through history alive they can be no they can be dead they can you know be famous they can be non-famous so are they couples or uh, like single and then a plus one like how does that work oh that's a good question i mean it's sort of like plus one but but maybe that's a good way to do it is is couples because maybe couples where the both people are important or involved in each yeah, other and known that might be cool that might be interesting it might be say something about couples it might say something about relationships how about six people three couples that'll fit at our new dining table uh, perfectly <laughs> <laughs> we have six chairs we have eight chairs well because you and me we're right there. <laughs> well yeah so that's eight. so we need eight how about the meal what do we eat yeah, that should be that? that should be part of it. That should match, you know, who the people were inviting in some way. Okay, it could be anywhere in the world. Three couples. They can be famous, they could be historical figures, but they're not family or friends because we don't want to offend anybody. Let's probably say more about us than than the guests, but <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. I'm thinking this should be a podcast. something you don't want to hear can you pull that cord out from under (laughs) hi i'm jill norton and i'm jay boninsinga how we doing we're doing well welcome 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 Welcome. back to welcome back to this This should should be be a podcast (laughs) so yeah we've uh it's been a while we've been been absent for a while a wall we both had covid fun together over the fourth of july it was sexy we no. were both sick together. It was not sexy in <laughs> any capacity. <laughs> it was. It was. It went way longer than I expected it to. Really? It you, like you were sick everybody, longer than everybody I know had it for oh, like yeah, oh, I had it for like, like a forty two or three days. Flu. They're and lying. I had. I had, mine was like two weeks from beginning to end. So, but I'm did totally. You, did feeling, you hear Joe Biden has it now? Yes, I just heard that today. I'm worried. <laughs> All right. I'm worried he's going to tell a story about it. Okay, let's not go there. So despite COVID, we did really enjoy just being in our new pad that we're so still in love with and amazed with every day. And it's just been really a very cool part of this. And, you know, with 4th of July, even though we had COVID, it was still just cool being here. But the one thing that really sucked was that we didn't see our friends. We had to cancel like six things including a trip that I was supposed to go on to see my family. But it kind of inspired this topic of uh, what would be the greatest dinner party. You want to go first? Sure. So I came up with this couple. This is the first couple I came up with. This is my favorite couple in the world. I admire them so much. 
I learn after I put this together, you know, for this, I wrote notes and, you know, researched this couple that there's, there's a documentary coming out today on this very couple called The Last Movie Stars on uh, HBO Max. And I can attest so, that he came up with all of this before we heard about this yeah, last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Ethan very... Hawke is the producer of it and director of it. and You know, I admire Ethan Hawke, and, I, and so got, good for them. But, we, <laughs> but it was funny because we were watching Colbert, and you're like, oh, my God, he's saying everything that's in my story. And I'm like, well, let's just do it anyway. So, I could go on and on about being ripped off over the years of my career, right, but kind of I won't do a, that. I won't do that. It started a downward spiral of... <laughs> All right, but go ahead. Okay. So the first couple I would invite to the ultimate dinner party would be Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. You know, first of all, I think Paul Newman is the greatest actor who ever lived. The greatest film actor, I guess, maybe I should say. Well, Paul Newman was the ultimate in method acting. And, uh, you know, just a sidebar, method acting which was originally sort of sprang from this Russian acting teacher, uh, and then it was taken up by an American named Lee Strasberg. Um, it was all about coming up with like a sense memory of your life and something that happened to you. If you, if you needed to be sad in a scene, you would dredge up this feeling that you had when you were a kid and you lost your dog or something like that you know and it sounds so simple but it's it's complex and beautiful and it changed acting uh, Newman was you know working with Strasberg in the golden era when when James Dean was also learning from Strasberg Brando Marilyn Monroe all these great actors even even contemporary actors like Alec Baldwin they all attended you know the actor's studio he won an Oscar for The Color of Money, which is a great film, but it's probably not even his greatest performance. I think the verdict, he deserves the Oscar for Best Actor. And, you know, he was also a wonderful human being. He, he raised more money in his charities, I think, than any other celebrity in the history of, of charitable giving, you know, with his brand. Even more interesting was his wife, Joanne Woodward. Okay, who I think is the most underrated actor in the world, in the history of acting. I, you know, in 1958, she blew away the world with her performance in a movie called Three Faces of Eve, which was about a multi, multiple personality sufferer. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. She, she's not even recognized enough for that. I think she changed acting forever to be able to switch a personality in front of the camera in real time. Nobody had ever done that. And it sounds simple today, but Joanne Woodward was the, was the pioneer of this amazing acting. And also, she was another amazing person. There's an old Hollywood rumor that uh, she you know, was a dear friend of Gore Vidal, in the 60s, Gore Vidal was an actor. He, he, he was a writer, a novelist, a thinker. And in those days, you know, if you were gay, you pretty much stayed in the closet or, or you could lose your jobs and stuff. So he needed what was known <laughs> in those days as a beard, uh, a person to portray his... Uh, Paramore and that and Joanne Woodward was a dear friend of his, so she went to 
you know, receptions with him and pretended to be his girlfriend. She was married to Paul Newman for 50 years. Paul Newman, you know, adored Joanne Woodward and she adored him. And it was one of the most lovely relationships in, you know, the celebrity world. She, they were married until Paul passed away. That was in, I think, 2008 that, that Paul Newman passed away and uh, they were married right up until then. Paul Newman was like a hunk. <laughs> you know, when he was often asked by people, hey, you must be tempted by starlets and people hanging on you, and you must have tremendous temptations to have affairs. He said this once, and he's quoted as saying, you know what, why would I go out for hamburger when I have steak at home? Nice. I was wondering where that came from, that you always say it. <laughs> Do I always say it? Well, <laughs> I mean, always is a big word, but you well, know, it applies to my marriage. Now. Well, of course, meat. <laughs> of course, meat is involved. <laughs> Touche. Okay, so over to you. All right. Who's your first couple? My first couple <laughs> is Iris and Carl Apfel. So, for those of you who may not know who Iris uh, Apfel is, she was an amazing fashion icon. So she's just this fabulous woman, and she and her husband, Carl, um, who Carl sadly died in 2015, but they were married for 67 years uh, in, from wow. Queens, New York, and um, she, they, you know, she's a businesswoman, she's an interior designer, she's a fashion icon, but they had the business together um, for 1950 to 1992 of like a textiles business, like entire, you know, so... They were traveling the world and buying textiles, and you know, so that kind of led into then her future, you know, kind of where she is now. She's still alive. She's a hundred years old. She, at the age of ninety-seven, signed a modeling contract. They've celebrated her in many, many ways. But yeah, they even had a contract with the White House when they had their business. And I mentioned the documentary, which was amazing. But you really, in the documentary, just saw their relationship and how. First of all, he was adorable, and he dressed really cute. He was like, <laughs> but he was really quiet. But he just had the fat, most fabulous outfits on, and she is just, oh, she's just a free spirit. She just doesn't care. I just admire her. She just had so much energy, and she just kept pushing through life and just enjoying every minute of it, and just wanted to be different, and made it work for her. And uh, she's still an amazing woman. Can you describe like her look? Yeah, she's got short, like white hair. And then she's got those huge ass black cool glasses, and then she just wears huge costume jewelry and just the most fabulous, like very colorful. You know, she's never just wearing black. You know, she's always just colorful. And then they even right. go in the documentary into her place, and you see all the cool stuff that they've gotten around the world, and it's just kind of clutter, but in a beautiful, lived-in kind of way. Anyway, I don't know. They're just a beautiful couple, and I just admire her so much. So I just thought they would be fabulous guests. But I am going to match you with quotes with each of mine. All right, cool. All right, so her quote, one, she's got a lot of good quotes. Um, but one of them that I liked is, no amount of money can buy you style. Wow. Yes. Yeah. True. Yes, but it helps. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Says the woman who taught me how to shop at, like, thrift shops and, you know. Yeah. yeah, used you know, army surplus stores and stuff. Yeah, you know, 
COVID really did a number on wanting to go to a thrift store. <laughs> you know, it's sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, back to you. Okay, cool. Well, my second couple that I'm going to invite to the ultimate dinner party are Tom Waits and Kathleen Brennan. Also, uh, just a sidebar, I think it's fascinating that I'm going through couples that where the sort of the man is like better known than the woman, but the woman's sort of the, you know, hand that rocks the cradle and sort of the smart one, the, you know, Cyrano de Bergerac behind the scenes. And you're kind of like inverting it in all of yours are powerful women where there's, would you agree, Frida? <laughs> That's a yes. All right. Tom Waits. She loves Tom Waits. I don't know. Our cat is a huge Tom Waits fan. Tom Waits was a complete original. He was, he is, he's still alive and well and active and creating art. A composer, performance artist, uh, he's an actor. There's nobody else like him. He started out in this sort of Laurel Canyon, folky, you know, troubadour culture where he sang folk songs, kind of ragged, interesting folk songs, really indelible. But he really didn't discover his true uh, essence until uh, a few years later. He transformed himself for the first time in his career, and it wouldn't be the last time. So I almost uh, think he's analogous to, to David Bowie, because he, he would reinvent himself. And it wasn't until he reinvented himself the first time into this kind of beatnik, street, tattered poet. And he would wear this, you know, pork pie hat. He'd be rumpled and he'd look like he slept in his car. And, and he would do his performances, he would do his live shows leaning against a street light. And it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. And his music was beautiful and melodic. It was like Tin Pan Alley melodies and lullabies. And and that was a probably, you know, late 70s. And that was sort of his first reincarnation. Then he became an actor because it was like, this guy, well, I gotta put him in a movie. And the first person to put him in a movie was Sylvester Stallone. And that experience changed Tom Waits' life because he met his future bride, Kathleen Brennan. She was a script analyst uh, for Zoetrope Studios, which is Francis Ford Coppola's studio. Uh, she was this brilliant gem of an artist that was just discovering herself, and they fell for each other instantly. And uh, that was in 1979, and by 1980 they were married. It turns out that Kathleen Brennan changed Tom Waits and sort of prepared him for his second big reinvention of himself. Was he, with their love and their, their, their kindred spirithood and their you know romantic marriage, she became his muse and his sort of avant-garde artist who, who pushed him to go to the very edges of avant-garde pop music and, and jazz and, and, you know, rock and, and funk. And, and, it, and he discovered this, like, new sound. And it was really amazing. It began in 1983 with his masterpiece. I think it's his masterpiece, Swordfish Trombone. 
And Kathleen Brennan was constantly pushing him toward experimentation. And Waits became this new incarnation that was like a hipster god, a pioneer of like art fusion in this beat poetry surrealism. It almost defies description. Waits, from that point on, he was he was a great character actor in all these art films, and and he he rarely tours. Sadly, I've seen him about a half a dozen times in my life. And I saw him at once, once at the Chicago Theater, and it was like seeing, was like going back to 1938 Germany and seeing like, a, you know, Kurt Weil play. It was so incredible, and he was he mastered the stage. And I think that's largely because of Kathleen Brennan. That's why I thought they would be the ultimate couple to have at a party. I would just give anything and sit in a room with them with some cocktails. And I'll end with probably the quote that Tom Waits is known for many quotes. Many of them were were sort of similes and, and uh, metaphors. And and he had this deep, deep, growly voice that was sort of like a cross between, you know, Louis Armstrong. Well, he's still and, alive. He still has it. Yeah, he but. still has it. I'm sorry. I keep <laughs> using the past tense like he's, he's no longer with us, but he is. He's in the 70s now. But he once said, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've heard you do that one before. Right. Back to you. Well, but first of all, I want to just note that, you know, I, from the beginning, since we met, I knew you were a huge Tom Waits fan and I had much respect for him, but I wasn't really into his music or anything. And when we were planning our wedding and trying to decide what to, what music to play when I was walking down the aisle and we were just going back and forth and, getting to the point where we were actually having an argument about it. We couldn't agree on anything. And then finally, we found the instrumental Tom Waits song called... Closing Time. Closing Time. And that's what I walked down the aisle to at our wedding. Yeah. It was beautiful. It is beautiful. I've been thinking about that ever since you mentioned it. Because Closing Time is sort of like, that's what happens when you get married. Everybody else, it's Closing Time. Sorry. (laughs) Right. I'm with her now. Aww. <laughs> Aww. So cool. All right. All right, so it's my turn? Yep. Okay. So my next one is Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas. Uh, and I did, I knew a little bit about Gertrude Stein, but I was just fascinated by her. And then I really don't didn't know much about Alice Toklas at all, but it just seems like they had a fascinating relationship and... So I'll start with Gertrude Stein, who was an American novelist, poet, and art collector. And she's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and raised in California, but she moved to Paris in 1903. And she hosted a Paris salon where leading figures in modernism, Picasso, Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Matisse, etc., all just came and went. And it just seems like an amazing time. And I think of our little Midnight in Paris movie that we love so much but she met Toklas in 1907 like Toklas had come from California I believe San Francisco she came from there was like an earthquake in San Francisco so she moved to Paris and the day after she moved there she met Gertrude Stein and they started a relationship it seems like it was a little like Gertrude Stein had already had several you know relationships with women but they were complicated whatever and then she met Toklas and it seems like they just sort of Toklas finally moved in with her, and they became partners, and Toklas kind of stood as her 
Stein's confidant, lover, cook, secretary, muse, editor, critic, and general organizer. <laughs> and uh, Sounds like what you do for me. <laughs> I know, except the cooking. <laughs> um, Stein with Toklas wrote an autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which is Stein's best-selling work. So they toured together. She you know, traveled. They traveled the world together. They had a poodle named Basket, and then <laughs> Basket number two, which Alice you know, took care of and after Gertrude Stein passed away in 1946. They were both Jewish. Stein is the author of one of the first coming out stories, Things Are As They Are. Um, nice. And she did have a quote. She had the quote, um, there's no there there. Oh, yeah, that was, that was, Ger- that that was Gertrude, Gertrude Stein. Stein. Yeah, at war, as it, that's what Wikipedia said. <laughs> my, my favorite portrayal of her is Kathy Bates in uh, Midnight in Paris. Oh, yeah. Remember Kathy Bates? Yeah, it was awesome. the whole thing. Everybody plays these characters. <laughs> right. <is> so, cool. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so um, yeah, I want to buy the book. I want to you know, find out more about them, but I was right. just fascinated, and they just sounded like, you know, badass, badass. women, and I just yeah. loved how... I mean, all these great writers from, you know, Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald, they, 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 she was like the first reader. She, right. they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would run it by her and she said, it's good. You know, they yeah. would continue on yeah. with it, you know. Okay. Uh, all right. So I have a quote also from Gertrude Stein to match yours. Uh, the quote is, one must dare to be happy. I love that. Beautiful. All right. So uh, I think we're back to you. All right, my final uh, couple is Alfred Hitchcock and Alma Ravel. Um, You know, Alfred Hitchcock, everybody knows Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, he became probably more famous than the famous celebrities that were in his movies, like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and Ingrid Bergman. He sort of solidified that by doing a cameo appearance in all his movies. There's always... A little passing shot where right. Hitchcock's getting on a bus, or he's, <laughs> you know, right. reading a newspaper, you know, in a, in a cafe. Or, Doesn't Stan you know. Lee do the same thing? Yeah, Stan Lee did the same thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe that's where he sort of came up with it is Hitchcock, because Hitchcock was from a, an earlier era than Stan Lee. And the reason we're, we're talking about Stan Lee is that I'm collaborating with Stan Lee on, on a series to our last of books. <laughs> In case you missed our last podcast. Yeah, but Hitchcock was born in 1899. He started in the silent movies. Most people don't realize that. I remember when I was in film school uh, at Columbia College in Chicago. It's like a shout out to Columbia College, one of the great film schools. Um, I went there too. Jill went there too. (laughs) Jill and I should be a couple at this party. Oh, yeah, we are. Okay. But I remember, not only did I see his most famous silent film, which is called The Lodger. It's amazing because this, it was in 1927, and The Lodger is a haunting, kind of mysterious, suspenseful film. It's all, it's got all the earmarks of Hitchcock, and he was a young man, and he just, he was fully formed back then. It was shown to me by a British. Uh, cameraman who became a professor at Columbia College named Jack Whitehead and he worked with Hitchcock and I'll never forget he you know the Hitchcock style of movies was point of view you were he put you in the point of view of the main character so his camera was 
of the utmost importance where it was pointed and and it was representing the point of view of the character so jack whitehead which was this lovely jovial little plump british guy is like i remember the greatest shot i ever executed for mr hitchcock and the shot was designed to have the camera be on the street and a taxi pulls up to a building. You're kind of doing a Hitchcock accent right now, right? Well, he, well, I'm trying <laughs> to vary it a little bit because Jack Whitehead was more middle-class British. Where, where Hitchcock had sort of a variant of like Cockney. Jack Whitehead is like, and the, the main character gets out of the cab. And the camera follows this main character into the building and up the stairs to the second floor, down the hallway, into his apartment, across the room, to the window, and the camera looks back down at the taxi who delivered him pulling away. In the 30s, that was, the cameras were the size of like a Volkswagen. Right. They, they had to have flyaway walls and everything. To do, today, to do that, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But Hitchcock, of course, is famous for Psycho, he sort of invented the slasher movie, The Birds, your favorite movie of all time, Rear Window, which again is a point of view masterpiece. Yes. Because the, the main character is handicapped. The main character is injured yeah. and confined to a wheelchair. Right. So it's you are confined to that wheelchair. You, the viewer. And, and he's that, a photographer. Exactly. He's a <laughs> photographer. <laughs> Hence your favorite film. <laughs> Less is known about Alma. Hitchcock's wife was just as brilliant. Hitchcock's wife was born in the exact same year as Alfred Hitchcock. They were the exact same age. And he met his wife, Alma Ravel, on his first film. She was a screenwriter. She was an editor. She was an assistant editor, I think, on that first film. But she was, she be, they fell in love and they were, they were married a year after he met her. And, the, and she became his first reader, first critic, first reaction to all his work. He would run everything by her. He would never make any decisions if Alma didn't think it was a good idea because she was a genius filmmaker. She came to be known as Lady Hitchcock. <laughs> That's how important she was yeah. to Hitchcock. She was like his secret weapon. And she was also, the whole reason why I think having Alfred and Alma at a party <laughs> the ultimate, because oh, Hitchcock was hilarious. He was funny. He was he loved to eat and drink. He was a big, rotund guy. And Alma was brilliant and witty. And in a way, she was like you because she noticed everything. There's a, there's a Hollywood legend that she that Hitchcock was done with Psycho, but he wouldn't show it to anybody until he showed it to Alma. He shows it to Alma. You familiar with the film Psycho, Jill? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a famous scene known as the shower scene. <laughs> and Janet Lee is brutally slashed by a unknown knife-wielding killer in the shower. And it prevented people from taking showers for generations. <laughs> and, but there's a famous part of that sequence, which is a famous sequence, where Janet Lee has to fall down and be completely still. There was no computer 
graphics in those days. You know, no computer-generated images. Right. She had to be completely still. So Alma's watching the fine cut. And she's the first person to watch it. And she's done. And she's like, Alfred, it's wonderful. Except for one thing. Janet Lee swallows after she's dead. You can see her swallowing. Isn't that crazy? That's she crazy. And, and Hitchcock fixed it. But she swallowed in that scene. And Alma saw it. That was her eye. So she was saying, take it out. Yeah, of course. Well, oh, she was, I thought, uh, Janet well, Lee was dead right, in I know, the scene. Well, I know, but when you first said it, I thought you meant put it in. All right. It's time for the Hitchcock quote. What oh, do you yes. think it'll be, Jill? I don't know. I'm just on the edge of my seat. You've never done a quote from Alfred Hitchcock before. This is you. my Alfred Hitchcock quote because, and it's, I say this quote, it's going to take a few minutes. It taught me probably the most important lesson in writing. I'm, I'm a writer. This taught me how to write. It, it really taught me the most important lesson in writing, especially the kind of genre that I write, which is suspense and mystery and crime and horror. People ask me, uh, what is the difference between shock and suspense? And I always say, consider two people... They're having a cup of tea outside at a cafe and they're talking about the weather. And all of a sudden, a bomb goes off under their table and blows them to smithereens. That's shock. Shock is easier. Shock is a simpler emotion. It's not quite as complex as suspense. Let's take the same scene, the same two people. They're outside, they're having a cup of tea, and they're talking about the weather. Then I show the audience the bomb underneath the table, and it's set to go off in 30 seconds. Then I cut back to the same people, same scene, haven't changed a thing. They're talking about the weather. But now the audience is going, don't talk about the weather. There's a bomb about to go off. <laughs> That's suspense. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you just love doing that. All right. So. Back to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I have saved my favorite for last, which is Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. I uh, named my cats after Frida and Diego. That's how much I love them. Frida Kahlo, a Mexican painter known for mostly for her self-portraits, like her life in Mexico and cultural and artifacts, uh, but pretty much everything was very biographical of what was going on in her life. She lived from 1907 to 1954, so she died at 47 years old. She's a self-taught painter, and uh, you know her style is kind of very naive folk art, right? Uh, but just beautiful and so colorful. And you and I both saw, and then I saw again that immersive Frida Kahlo exhibit, and it was so amazing. So it's beautiful, but it was very different than like the other immersive Van Gogh. It was very 
there was just a lot more about her life in it that was just beautiful. Right. Her art talked about, it, it you know, addressed race, it addressed gender, it addressed identity. It had uh, some po- political elements to it as well. And she overcame being diagnosed with polio as a child and then suffered a horrible bus accident at 18 that caused lifelong pain and medical problems that she had to endure. And she spent much of her life painting on her back, you know, and her with a mirror. And I mean, it's crazy, but she but that's how she expressed herself when she was bedridden. She mixed politics and art, like I said, and she ended up joining the Communist Party in 1927, and that is where she met Mexican artist Diego Rivera. Uh, They married in 1929. She was the first Mexican artist to be featured in the Louvre. Her first solo exhibit was in 1953, just before her death in 1954, and her work was kind of discovered really in the 1970s. And then in the 1990s is where she became iconic for the feminine movement and the LGBT movement. Her work has been celebrated depicting the female experience. But her love affair with Diego Rivera is a beautiful story, although tumultuous, kind of crazy. He was born in 1886 and died in 1957. He was 20 years older than Frida. He was a prominent Mexican painter and mostly creating large frescoes. He kind of helped establish the mural movement in Mexican and international art. And Frida was his third wife, but they did have a consensually non-monogamous relationship. And she basically thought, you know, I love him as he is. That's CNM, we call that CNM. What? (laughs) (laughs) Consensually non-monogamous CNM. You have an acronym for it for you? (laughs) I didn't know you were all tied into this. Okay, anyway. No, there was an article on it. Sure. All Uh right, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But she, they were still together when she passed away. Diego was played beautifully by Alfred Molina in the movie Frida with Salma Hayek. It's just so cool. I love that movie. It's kind of hard to watch because she goes through so much pain and the bus, whatever. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but so they would be kind of my favorite, I mean... I have to have them at my dinner party. Awesome. Well done. But I have a quote. Hold on. Yeah. So my quote from Frida Kahlo is, at the end of the day, we can endure much more than we think we can. Wow. Yeah, I like that. That's fabulous. Definitely. So do you still have one left? No. No. No, I was going to talk about where I was going to have my dinner party and what I was going to serve. Okay. Well, can I say mine first? Because it kind of goes with my thing. Of course. Okay. Um, Because I thought of all the places in the world that I would want to have this. But I really thought that the most beautiful place to have it would be where Frida Kahlo lived at La Casa Azul, the Blue House. And she had that just amazing property that's now the Frida Kahlo Museum. Wow. Um, Good idea. My only issue is I I don't want to ask someone who... I'm inviting to a party to actually host the party. <laughs> but then I thought, this is just a hypothetical situation, and she won't really be upset with me. Right. So anyway, that's my ideal place. I thought, I mean, my other places I think I talked about were like, you know, Portugal, uh, Italy, and Italy, Capri. Yeah. Um, you know, but when I, when I came down to it, it was like, no, I, this is where I want to have it. So Beautiful. What would you serve? Like a... a Mediterranean, but maybe it'd have a little more, you know, Mexican 
Latino kind spicy. of theme to it. It's a little spicy, a little more. But I <laughs> love, idea. but the seafood, you know, being like light and kind of almost raw bar, but like just fresh vegetables and and ceviche, ceviche, and, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. and like yeah. margaritas flowing. And <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> yeah. I'm there. Am I your plus yeah. one? You are my right, plus cool, one. Cool, cool, as long as you behave. <laughs> okay. Where's your location? All right, well, since most of my guests are are very down-to-earth, sort of iconoclasts, there's no pretension in any of these people. Newman was a big beer drinker. He raced cars. He was like NASCAR, and you always saw him with like a a Pabst Blue Ribbon, no pretension. And so is, is Tom Waits and Brennan. Brennan was Irish. Hitchcock and Alma, of course, were both British. And also, Waits is famous for writing about bars and diners and simple food one of the one of my favorite favorite pieces that he wrote was i think it was called nighthawks of the diner i think it has the the, the stanza uh, eggs and sausage and a side of toast coffee and a roll hash browns over easy chili in a bowl with burgers and fries. Now what kind of pie? A la mode. <laughs> well done. That's cool. So so it, in in honor of that, I would serve this sort of beautiful gastro pub menu. You know, with like craft beers. Did and, you say where it was? Yeah. No, I didn't. I was about to say that. I would serve this beautiful gastro pub menu at a place in Chicago on a rooftop dining area at a place called Jean's Sausage Shop <laughs> on Lincoln Square. <laughs> Lincoln Square with you know craft beers and vintage cocktails and we would start with the, like the greatest charcuterie board ever like with crafted dried meats and cheeses and an array of like really posh pub grub that, that sort of tips its hat you know to england a little bit like dates wrapped in bacon and uh, poutine with cheese curds and welsh rarebit and uh, marrow bones with toast points and wait there's more <laughs> duck confit is, and, there, uh, is there meat involved bangers and <laughs> <laughs> bangers and mash which are sausages and mashed potatoes, Kobe beef sliders, pork belly tacos. I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, You know, foie gras, mousse. (laughs) And and also in honor of Jewish food that I love and something that you turned me on to, which is like the greatest things I've ever eaten. And Paul Newman was Jewish. I don't know if you're aware of that. I would serve hand-carved pastrami sandwiches slathered in chicken liver. Nice. And, uh, you know, I would have Chinese lanterns and sort of Christmas lights. And also, by the way, the musical accompaniment at Gene's Sausage Shop on the rooftop, (laughs) a la the Beatles on the top of Apple Records, is Jeff Tweedy, the brilliant leader of Wilco and, and a Chicagoan and our hero and just one of the great hometown heroes yes. um, playing solo throughout the night. He's, he's done solo tours and I know he would, he would do that totally if, if he could do it for Waits and Kathleen Brennan and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and the Hitchcocks. 
Yeah. He definitely would do it for us. Yeah, but I'd really want to have him at the table. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, he has, he has a powerful wife who's, you know, yeah. a huge part of his life and, you know, brilliant person in her own right, so that he would work really well as a guest. I know. How about you? Who, I, who would... He could, he could come. We could make it an extra couple that we both agreed upon. All right. And then his, his boys could play. And he would go up and oh, play with that's them, a great, but that great way idea. they would be there. Because, yeah, great no, idea. No, nobody puts Jeff Tweedy in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we cover? Keep in mind, our... we are bringing people back from the dead, so maybe we could put <laughs> Jeff Tweedy in a corner. But still, I would, I'd want to be talking to him. You know, right, right, right. Um, Who would be your music at your Mexican feast? I would have uh, Calexico. Calexico, yeah, cool. Yes. They're, they're amazing. Uh, they're like from California and Mexico, and they're a mix, and they're this beautiful, it's just this beautiful music. Every song is just gorgeous, ethereal, but, ha- but the use of like horns that we saw them live and decided we needed an 11 piece band for our wedding because we wanted horn section. We wanted this kind of music, even though it wasn't really the kind of music we had, but we wanted horns right. and based on just seeing Calexico. Yeah. And I've seen them several times. Just yeah. There's that. a moment in every Calexico show where the horns kick yeah. in and it's just stunning. It's emotional. Yeah. It's powerful. It's just yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, so I just feel like that would fit the vibe of the Perfect. scene. Perfect. Yeah. So, what would you say if you had to summarize? I think Carl and Iris would really dig that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Everybody would. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you had to summarize your couples, how would you? I mean, you mentioned that like you had strong men with women who were, you know, as strong, if not more strong, in some cases. But what would you, if there's like a theme or a summary of who your couples, how they represent you? That's a great question. I mean, you know, these people, you know, are equals on every level. And maybe one of them became more famous, but that means nothing in terms of uh, an intimate relationship. The intimate relationship between a Hitchcock and an Alma Ravel is unbreakable it's so important hitchcock couldn't do what he does without alma and same with for alma you know they lived for each other and they worked together and they made magic together and they're all all these couples yours and mine all these couples did that and i i think that it's doubly poignant to me because i i feel that way about us My summary, the thing that connects all of them, I think, would be these these women who loved strongly and also surrounded themselves with art and beauty and and just embraced it and being artists themselves, but just living for their art and using it as a device to get through life and to express themselves. And because they're they're kind of different, but that's the thing I feel like that's yeah similar kind of brings them all together yeah definitely definitely that's what brings you and i together yeah well we're surrounded by our cool art and exactly yeah love and life in chicago (laughs) all right anything else no i'm just uh you know glad that i'm coupled with you i'm glad that it's dinner time (laughs) (laughs) yes all right well we'll uh we'll call it of the day but uh thanks for listening and uh love you love you bye
The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by the Riptones. And you can find their Roadhouse country music 24-7 on Spotify.